I gotta say, it, this has been a different morning than I thought it was going to start out to be. Um, you know, preparing all week the message and, and the ABF and everything. Um, but God has done something different here, at least within me. Um, in our ABF, uh, uh, Rebecca mentioned that we're in Daniel chapter 4, and we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar as he lays out his testimony on how ultimately he came to acknowledge the Almighty God in his life and to embrace it personally, not just from a distance or not to acknowledge that you know he's a great God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, but to ultimately embrace it for himself. And uh, we actually started the class because we're going to be talking about personal testimonies. About half the class shared their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. And, you know, it's one thing to sit in my office and write, oh, no, that'd be, that'd be a neat way to start, you know, it. But, boy, I tell you what, it is just humbling as you see how God works in people's hearts. And you see how God brings the events into people's lives to ultimately open up their hearts to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And then, and then we come here, and, and these songs are just hitting me like a wave after a wave after a wave. And what a tremendous privilege it is to be able to call myself a Christian, a child of God. And I, I am so undeserving. And, and actually, while Tim was sitting there, I'm, I'm sitting down there thinking, who am I to stand up and preach? Who, who am I that God would choose me to the only message that really matters in the world? All these voices that are out there that God says, I'm going I'm to use you at this moment and at this time to, to, to speak for me. And I tell you, it's very humbling. I didn't start out, you know, the day thinking it was going to go that way. Uh, but I'm telling you, God's, God's going to work in our hearts. And I pray he does in yours as well. I mean, that you can personalize his truth and, and personalize his word. Um, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. And actually, we are just going to crack open chapter 5 just a little bit. Matter of fact, I'm going to read the verses and probably not reference very much of them. Um, from then on, we're going to be taking a lot of other, other scripture in. Um, but I want to read um, a parable for you. And this is a parable that Christ taught in Mark chapter 12 in verses 1 through 9. And, and just listen to it. I guess we'll put it on up there and you can follow along there. And it says, And he, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. He said, A man planted a vineyard and, and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to the vine growers and he went on a journey then. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him, they took that slave, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, you know, the, the owner of the vineyard sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and with so many others, beating some and killing others. And he had one more to send, a beloved son, he sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to another. Now this parable is a parable in contrast. Remember, you know, parables have a, a, a larger teaching. If you go, can't go too deep into them of the symbolism, but there's some major symbolism here that is very obvious. In this parable, you have a vine owner who obviously represents God the Father. From what we see of his working and his moving, he is gracious. He is generous. He doesn't just have a plot of land that he's going to rent out. It says he planted a vineyard. He said he, he put a wall about it and, and a wine press of, you know, underneath it so, you know, to make everything easier and towers on it so that it, it could be protected. He went the, the extra mile to this vineyard. And then you see him as he's interacting with the, the vine growers, the vine workers, how he is so patient with them <clears throat> and hopeful that they'll, they'll change sending servant after servant after servant to them to appeal to them, but each one is treated the same. So you have God the Father, and then you have the vine growers or the workers. Obviously, they represent, you know, mankind. They are selfish. They're greedy. They're cruel. They're uncaring. And, and I think the, the purpose of this parable is as you read it, you know, there's supposed to be this indignation growing within you at the vineyard owner as he gives chance after chance after chance with those vine growers. They never change. Matter of fact, they just increase in their evil. And then he comes down to verse 9. He says this. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? After the way he has been treated, after all of the chances, his graciousness, his mercy, his patience, what will he do? He will come and show a side to those vine growers that they never expected him to show. They knew him as gracious. They knew him as patient. They presumed upon his kindness. But he says there will come a day that they're going to see a side that they never thought they would see. Second part of verse 9 says, he will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to the others, to others. And not a single person, when this vine owner comes to do this, number, not a single person is going to think at this point that he is unjustified in doing what he does. As a matter of fact, as you read the story, most of you are probably sitting there, you know, wondering, why didn't he act sooner? Why didn't, he, why didn't you know, he, he, he go and strike them down earlier? We marvel at his patience. Well, folks, there is a side of God that we all like to rest in. We love the patience of God. We love that our God is a forgiving God, that our God is a gracious God. But if we would step back and take a bird's eye view of this fallen world that we live in, we would express the same surprise that God hasn't judged us sooner. Matter of fact, 2,000 years ago, and things have gotten worse and worse, but 2,000 years ago, he said in Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32, and he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. 
being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murderers, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I mean, we understand, we see our world, we see our lives in contrast in this parable. And we marvel at God's patience. But one day, one day all of that patience is going to come to an end. Now we have come to the portion of 1 Thessalonians and the chapter 4 into chapter 5 where we've been looking at prophetic events. Things that are going to be coming in the future. And last week we focused on the next prophetic event for the church. Um, the next event that we're looking for. If you're a Christian, this is what you're looking for. We're looking for the rapture of the church. We talked about this being a signless event where God comes to meet his believers in the air to take his church, believers that are part of that church, and take us to meet in the air and go so to be with the Lord. That's the event that, that, that we are looking for today. It's a signless event. And then after that church is removed, we talked last week and the, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that final week then is then going to be laid out and it's going to begin counting. Following that final week, that seven-year tribulation, um, that's kind of called the day of the Lord. But following that is, is what we know as the second coming of Christ. Whereas Zechariah prophesied that the Lord would return, he would set his feet on the Mount of Olives, that mountain would be split in two, and ultimately, you know, God's second, uh, Christ's second coming to, is here on this earth. Um, so with that, um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to ask, we're just going to read the first three verses, but I would like you, in reverence to the word of God, if you could stand with me as I read those verses. It says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, we have no, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Can you see that? Let's talk a little bit about the difference between Christ's first coming to earth and Christ's second coming to earth. Uh, we are all well acquainted with Christ's first coming to earth. Every Christmas, every December, that whole month, we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation where God became man and dwelt among us. When we look at the, the first coming of Jesus Christ, we think about humility as he, as he comes as a baby, as a human baby, you know, born in a stable. And ultimately, we know that his first coming, the purpose for his first coming was to provide a sacrifice for our sins. That's why he came. He made it very clear in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, it's speaking about Christ, his first coming, for he will grow up before them like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He is despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That was God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to tell about his son's first coming. It was going to be in humility. It was going to be to to ultimately die for the sins of the world. But we also know that even as coming as a child, as a baby, it was known, it says in Luke chapter 132, that of him he will be great and would be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So his first coming to earth was ultimately part of him ultimately taking the throne of David. Now, you remember last week we had a a number of charts that we looked at. Um, We're going to go ahead and put that first chart up here. This is one that we had from last week. And this is kind of what we have been talking about in in the, the future events that are coming. You've got the Jewish Old Testament and up until the the point of the crucifixion. That would have been, if you remember in Daniel 9, that would have been 69 of the 70 weeks was lived out before the the crucifixion. Christ comes, he is crucified. The Jews reject him as their savior. As a result of that, God's time clock that's been clicking in that 70, you know, 70 week uh, prophecy that's given, that clock stops. We usher in the church age. We looked at that, Ephesians chapter 3, talked about it being a mystery, something that we, we didn't know about that God reveals the church age where there's no Jew or Gentile anymore. Ultimately, as we looked at last week and at the end of chapter 4, the rapture of the church comes, that Jesus Christ comes to take you know, believers, those who have given their faith, their trust, their hearts to him. He takes us out of this world. Then the final week begins of Daniel chapter 9. It's a seven-year tribulation. We're back to the Jewish Old Testament And then ultimately at the end of that seven-year tribulation is going to be the second coming to this earth of Jesus Christ. That's going to be a a thousand-year reign, and that's going to end with a new heaven and a new earth. Now, let's put up the next chart. If the Jews had not rejected Christ, if they'd accepted him as Savior, this is what the timeline in, in Daniel 9 should have looked like. They would have had Daniel 69 weeks, Christ would have been crucified. We said that. You know, all of the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Christ was always going to have to be crucified. But the Jews would have accepted him as the Messiah. Um, you know, the Romans, my, my guess is, you know, the Romans still would have crucified him. And ultimately, then the seven-year tribulation would have started, which would have, you know, in, in the time frame just happened as being Daniel's 70th week, would have happened in uh, succession. At the end of that, Christ would have returned to this earth, a thousand-year reign, and then the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? The Messiah, Christ, his second coming. For the Jewish people, you can see here, it is the long-awaited promise that was given to the Jewish people. All right? This is what they lived for. Christ's first coming was for the purpose of redemption. 
It was to, to die for the sins of the world. Christ's second coming isn't for redemption. Christ's second coming is a time of punishment. To punish the wicked and to establish his kingdom. And in the same way that, that you know, we marvel at the patience of the vineyard owner, that he didn't strike those, those people that he rented his vineyard to, that he didn't strike them down earlier. You know, we look around today and we see God's same patience with our world around us. As we have turned away from God, as we have shunned God out of our lives, and ultimately, finally, he says, enough. Just like the vine owner did. He said, enough. And suddenly, we are going to see a side of God that we don't dwell upon very often. But the, the full picture of God, we will understand his judgment. Now, the obvious question for us, and, and I sat in my office thinking about this this week, it says, if the rapture of the church, you know, the taking of believers here, is the next event that's going, you know, kind of prophetic event we're looking for. And if we won't be around on earth for Christ's second coming, not in the traditional sense here, um, what, is, what does this mean to us? I know this is a Jewish promise, and it means something, you know, very much to the Jewish people, but what does it mean to us? What does it mean to the church today? What does it mean to a Christian? Well, I want to focus on two things this morning to give you. All right, number one, let's talk about what is ahead for the church. Excuse me. Now, you have probably heard the term, you know, the bride of Christ. You know, the bride of Christ in, 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 in one means or another. And um, as I looked at this, I find there is a lot of debate on whether the church is the bride of Christ or whether Israel is the bride of Christ. And the answer to that is yes. It's yes. Remember, using that symbolism of you know, the bride and the groom and the church being the bride of Christ, it's a picture. You know, it's an allegory. It, it, it is a symbol. I mean, as we look at marriage, even still today, as, as, you know, much as they're trying to corrupt it, marriage is of a man and a woman, and it is the strongest picture that we have of unity, of two becoming one flesh, and, and it is the, 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 of greatest importance today. And so that is a picture that God is using, that Christ is using to talk about the importance, the unity that is going to take place. Israel in the Bible is referred to um, in the marriage context to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, if you go to Revelations uh, chapter 21, verse 9 and 10, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. Okay, so he's going to show him. So what does he do? He carries me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and shows me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven from God. So the Jews, Jerusalem, the holy city, I mean, that is all referred to as the, the, the bride of Christ. But if you look at scripture, you find that the church, New Testament believers, are also referred to as the bride of Christ. Probably the one that we're the most uh, familiar with is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
And then it goes on towards the end there. It says, for this reason, <coughs> excuse me, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he makes it very clear that the church, that, that symbolism, that unity and oneness, that you know, we are the bride of Christ. It would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 2, we'll go ahead and put that up there for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 2. Well, that's okay. We don't need that. that okay, you got it. it. says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one. I mean, he's, he's talking about us. You know, godly jealousy. He betrothed us. We are, we are married. It's a picture. It's a picture of our unity. It's a very special picture of, 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 of a relationship that we are going to have with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I think rather than, than debate it, you know, who's, who's the bride of Christ, I think we can just apply it to both. And it's a tremendous symbol of unity in God's care and love for us. Um, but let's take a look at it in the context of the church here. Okay, let's look at the church here. Um, it's kind of interesting. Our rituals around marriage today, um, they've, they've kind of strayed away from the ancient times. But if you look at Christ's relationship with the church in the context of when this was written, in the context of ancient marriage, there's, there's such a tremendous picture here of, of, of Christ and the church. Uh, there are three phases to the ancient marriage. Uh, the first phase, phase one, is the father of the groom or the groom will go and pay a dowry or a bride price to purchase, you know, the, 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 the bride that would be paid to the bride's father, you know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You, if you're a Christian, me, I am a Christian, I have been bought with a price. It would go on to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ, that was the price that was paid for the bride. Christ came. His first coming was to pay that bride price, that, that dowry for each and every one of us. That then, once that, in the, in the ancient times, once that was agreed upon and once that price was paid, then it would be followed by a time of usually about a year when the couple would be betrothed together. And again, if you remember, you know, Joseph and Mary, you know, it said, it, it, it talked about them when the angel came to Mary and, you know, a, a miraculous birth was going to occur. Well, it says, you know, it talks about them being betrothed. They were already in that, that, that stage. Uh, we would call it the engagement period, but it was a little bit more to them, but that's how we could liken it. You know, after we ask, you know, a woman to marry us and they say yes, then we have a, a period of time that, you know, we're waiting un until that marriage. Um, this, this time of betrothal is where we are at today as believers, as Christians. Right now, Christ has paid the price to redeem us, and now we are waiting. Now we are waiting for him to come for his bride, for him to come for his church. Okay, so that's the first 
The first phase is the groom paying that, that, that bride price. The second uh, part of it is a processional. Okay? On the appointed day, the groom would lead this joyous parade of, of, of followers and go claim his bride. Now the bride, the bride would know the day that it was going to be happening. He didn't just, he didn't just show up at the door. He knew the day it was going to happen, but she would not you know, know the time that it was going to happen. So all that day, the bride was in anticipation of the bridegroom coming to claim her, you know, for them to, to be joined together. And all day she was supposed to live in this anticipation. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. Christ referred to this period um, when he gave the parable of the, the ten virgins or the ten attendants. Remember, the, you know, these ten attendants, a, a bride would have the attendants, you know, we would call them maids of honor, we would, by today's standard, but they with her, and they would be waiting, you know, with her in anticipation, and, 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 and when the bride, uh, bridegroom came, you know, they led the processional, and they would have lamps and everything like that, and remember when he told this parable, he said there were five of them that showed up to be the attendants with no oil, and as a result of that, not having, you know, prepared, they missed out on going into the banquet, well, this time that we would be talking about as, as the church, we would be looking at this being the rapture of the church. Christ is coming for his bride. We're to be ready that that day, you know, that we're prepared for that day, that we don't miss it. You know, and it's so interesting. In the parable of the ten attendants, this is what it said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 3. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, I've got to ask myself a question. What in the world were they thinking? I can be there but not be ready? I can go to church? I can be in the church but have no real connection to be part of, of, of what is going to take place? I mean, what... What, what, were they, what were they thinking, you know, when, when they came to that place? And then I remember oil. Oil is often used as anointing in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's also used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, You know of Jesus Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It, it compares it, you know, to, the, to, to that oil. And so there's that beautiful picture. Here, here's five of them show up, no oil, there's no anointing. They really have no connection whatsoever. Folks, when a person genuinely gets saved, when a person doesn't just come to church, isn't just religious, but when a person generally gives his heart and asks for forgiveness of sin, you know, he is given the Holy Spirit. We have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And there is a truth that you can be in the church, but if you don't have the oil, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are going to be left out. You are going to be left behind. And it was the same for Israel. This is the picture that they're talking about here. The coming of Christ for his church, the rapture. You know, there's a, 
They can be left out of that if they're not ready. Okay, let's talk about the third phase of the marriage, and that would be the marriage feast, the marriage feast. Again, back to the, the parable. It says in Matthew 25, verses 10 through 12, it says, and while they were going away to make the purchase, these are the five foolish ones that didn't have the oil, um, while they were going away to try to take care of what they should have done earlier, it says the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know you. I gave you ample time. I gave you time to prepare. You knew what was necessary, but you didn't take it seriously. And at one point, he says, this is it. I'm I'm done. No more. No more chances. And for the church, then, this going into the feast that he's talking about here, this happens after the rapture, after we are taken up to be with him. The bridegroom comes for his bride. And during this seven-year tribulation period that is now you know, back to the, the Jewish economy, the church is with Christ, um, you know, and, and there's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, that wedding feast precedes the second coming of Christ. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. I, I think we'll probably get into it in the next few weeks. But, but look at the, the, the difference here. If you go to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, it said, let us, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are true words of God. So this is, is, you know, Christ coming for his bride. Right after that, in the same chapter, just a couple verses down, You see, it says in verse 11, he says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is after the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and rages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except him. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horse. <coughs> Excuse me. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is obviously talking about the second coming of Christ, Christ ultimately coming to earth to set up his, his, his millennial reign. It happens after the marriage feast. So, again, you have that picture of, of that's what we are waiting for. When the rapture comes, I would imagine during that seven-year period, it's going to be a great time of celebrating, and for seven years that we're going to be celebrating the marriage feast of the Lamb, then ultimately we will come back with Jesus Christ to this earth to rule. So as a Christian, we have come through phase one. Christ has paid our debt price His offer, by offering himself on the cross. We are now in the phase of waiting for the moment that he comes to claim us as his own. And for us, it means we're supposed to be ready. 
We're supposed to be genuine. We're supposed to be letting the world know this, giving them the opportunity to be ready so that when Christ does return, because after the rapture happens, there's not going to be that chance that, oh, I'm sorry, we, you know, I can get into the feast. That door is going to be closed at that moment. There's going to be other things happening during the tribulation that a person gets saved, and maybe we'll look at those down the road here. But as far as for the church that is not destined to wrath in the tribulation time period, that door is going to be closed. So, so that's the first thing. You know, what, you know, what's ahead of us for the church? And, and, and that would be the answer. That, um, I want to take a brief look, though, at the second thing of Christ coming and what it reveals to us. And it's kind of what we started this, this message which, with. I want to talk about the nature of God. And part of the nature of God that, that we don't refer to very often. I think we'd all agree that our world presumes upon God. I mean, he keeps the planets rotating. He gives us life. He gives us oxygen and, and causes food to grow in the sunshine and all of these things. He holds these things together. And what do we do? We presume upon him and presume upon him and presume upon him. We ban him from our schools. We thumb our nose at his laws and his characters. We murder his creation in the womb. You know, we belittle his truth. Our leaders use him as a, a political pawn, quoting from the Bible when it suits them, but then defying it any time, you know, it, it doesn't suit them or their whim. God's children are mocked around the world. They are mistreated and they are murdered. This is how we treat our God. This is the perception that we have of our God. I was talking with my son Aaron uh, a few days ago, and we were talking about this, and, and he gave me a, a tremendous visual of, of, of sin and God. He said, just imagine for a second that if uh, you, if you went to a junkyard, and while you're walking around the junkyard, all these beat-up cars that have been in wrecks and everything, and you took your keys out, and if you went along one of those cars and you just keyed it, just scratched the side of it, you know, no big deal because it, you value it as a junkyard. What, what does it matter, you know, if you key a car there? But then if you did a, the same thing, if you went to a used car lot, you were walking around looking at the cars and, you know, they're not new but they're used, but you took and you, and you keyed one of the cars, you'd expect that you'd, you know, there'd be a little bit more severe reaction from the owners, wouldn't you, than from the junkyard. How about if you go to a new car dealership? Take your key out, go up to one of those nice new cars and, and just, just put a nice scratch in it. Well, the owner of those cars, you can bet, is going to have a greater reaction than the used car dealer or the junk car dealer. So now imagine yourself going to a place that sells Ferraris. And you take your key out. You just rip a big scratch in the side of a brand new $250,000 Ferrari. What do you think the owner of that Ferrari is going to feel like that you have done? And the problem with our world is we look at God like he's a junk dealer. We presume upon God and presume upon God. We don't give him the honor. We don't give the glory that he deserves. And so when the world, when we do something wrong or we disobey his commandments, disobey his truths, 
we don't think it's that big of a deal because we value God like a junk dealer, not like a Ferrari owner. You see, in the nature of God, one day we are going to learn how God sees us. We are going to learn how every single action, every single disobedience, everything that we have written off as being politically correct and okay and and we've turned our deaf ear to all of those things, we have been taking a key and we have been scratching a Ferrari. And one day the owner is going to roar and it is all going to be over with. We look around us today as Christians. I look at this world and I, and I, I can't help but my cry is the same cry as in Revelations chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. You know, during this time of tribulation, it says, the lamb broke the fifth seal and I saw underneath the altar of the souls who those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which, which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood to those who dwell upon the earth? How long can your patience be? These are martyrs. These are Christians that are crying out, God, when will you not strike? And God gives them a, a robe and says, Hold on just a little longer. God is coming. God's patience is ending. And one day, they are going to know, the world is going to know of all of their offenses and what they have done and how they have shunned God, who they have shunned, not the junk dealer, but the Ferrari owner. And one day, that owner is going to come in justice to to extract what the world that he created, what he has given to them, what what they have taken and what they have, have, have damaged in him. God's answer. God's answer, and he has an answer to those who cry out and say, God, how long? I mean, how long can the world go like this? How long can we keep in our sins steeping it and right becomes wrong and and wrong is is, is being glorified today? How long? Well, here's his answer in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord one day that... With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness is going to dwell. You see, the day is coming. The day is coming when God says no more. Sin is going to be judged. Evil is going to be vanquished. The vineyard owner is going to say enough. I have given you chance after chance after chance. And we are going to see a side of the nature of God that we don't like to reflect upon. We just want to talk about God is love. And he's patient. All those things are true. He's forgiving and he's grace and he's mercy. But they mean nothing if God is not just, if God is not righteous, if God is not 
holy as well. And at that moment when God says enough, Christ will return to earth. He will return as a righteous king to reign for a thousand years until the time comes when he brings ushers in that new heaven and that new earth. And our hope, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. This is our hope. It is Jesus Christ. It is his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins to, to cleanse us, to be our savior, to be our redeemer. And in just a moment, we are going to go to the Lord's Supper and we're going to remember the bride price. We're going to remember what it costs for him to come and to redeem you, for him to redeem what it cost him in his blood, in his body. You know, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescued us from to come. We're going to remember that is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, our salvation, that is going to save us from his wrath, from, from that true nature of God when that comes out. Both sides of, of God's nature are revealed in our salvation. We are saved to hope. We are saved to forgiveness. We are saved to a new family. We have joy. We have heaven awaiting us. But the opposite side of that, we are saved to some things, but we are saved from judgment. We are saved from pain, and we are ultimately saved from the wrath of God.